From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. The House Democratic Caucus voted on November 28th to nominate California's Nancy Pelosi for speaker. Pelosi won by a vote of 203 to 32, but she'll need more votes than that in January, when the full House will decide who gets the job. Pelosi has made headway in winning over some opponents, most recently reaching a deal with Democrats in the Problem Solvers Caucus to allow more bipartisan legislation to the House floor. But a hardcore faction of Pelosi skeptics persists. My guest today is Molly Reynolds, a fellow at the nonpartisan Brookings Institution think tank who analyzed the situation in a piece for Brookings preceding the caucus vote. Welcome, Molly. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Molly, what does the caucus vote say about where Pelosi stands right now? So it's, I think, both good news and bad news for her. So it's good news in that she clearly has a lot of support in the caucus. Proud to be the nominee, the nominee of the House Democratic Caucus, once again, for Speaker of the House. Given the math problem that she faces, um, she needs to get to... Uh, a numerical majority of those voting for a member by name, and we could we could talk right. about exactly what that means. But to get to the number she needs, she still needs to convert some of those folks who voted against her in the caucus um, this week uh, to yeses or at least to not nos um, on the floor. Right. She'll need uh, approximately, what, 17, 18 more votes? Uh, yeah. So she can lose, um, she can afford to lose 17 votes if every member of the House is present and casting a vote for a candidate by name. Uh, of those 203, it's it was a secret ballot, but it's thought some of those were delegates who will not be able to vote exactly. on the floor. Exactly. So, um, so. The, the House uh, Democratic rules let um, delegates from places like D.C. Uh, participate in um, party votes, but they obviously don't have votes on the floor. So um, exactly what her margin here is is a little unclear, but she still has a little bit of work to do. It is important to note that uh, some of the folks who uh, didn't vote for her yesterday probably did that um, as a way to satisfy what they had public commitments they had made um, to oppose her um, at some point, and then they may change their mind. They may flip before the, the vote on the floor in January. So it was a secret ballot, but what do we know about the 32 who voted no? They come from two primary groups. So there's one group of Pelosi skeptics who are um, incumbent members of the House, generally kind of early to mid-career folks in the House who feel frustrated by um, the way that Pelosi has run um, the party. Uh, they feel like she has con concentrated too much power in the hands of a few party leaders. There's not been enough opportunity for um, younger, more junior members to move up through the leadership ranks. Um, and then the second group of um, Pelosi skeptics, as we might call them, are folks who are newly elected House freshmen who uh, promised on the campaign trail uh, that they would not vote for Pelosi. Uh, that was, I think, largely an attempt to make themselves seem um, more independent-minded, put a little bit of distance between themselves and the Democratic establishment in Washington. You mentioned at the top a third group, um, members of the, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan group of House members who are uh, attempting to 
open up more opportunities for bipartisan legislating. Pelosi appears to have made a deal with um, that group of Pelosi skeptics, promising some rules changes. And in exchange, all of them or nearly all of them are expected to vote for her on the floor uh, in January. So in addition to just Pelosi's tenure as leader, there are larger issues at stake here, right? Like the seniority system in the House. And this has split Democrats. You talked about this in your piece. Right. What, so, is, what is that issue? Right. So um, one of the uh, one of the challenges that Pelosi faces here um, in terms of managing her caucus is that w- the kinds of things that might help um, mollify one set of Pelosi critics are likely to generate other kinds of criticism for her from other parts of the caucus. And so the seniority system is a great example here. So Republicans, since about the mid-90s, have had term limits for their committee leaders. Three terms, once you've been on the top position uh, on a committee as a Republican for three terms, you have to you have to uh, leave that position. And so, you know, we, we saw in this election cycle a number of, rich, of uh, Republican chairmen who were being term limited out of their positions choose to retire rather than return to being um, in the rank and file. And one uh, thing this has done for Republicans is given more younger Republicans the opportunity to ascend uh, through the power ranks of the Republican conference. There are some Democrats who would like to see uh, Democrats do something similar. Um, Some of these kind of early to mid-career folks who feel frustrated by um, their inability to get more influence in the House might like the opportunity to ascend to subcommittee and committee chairmanships. They might like term limits that allow them to do that. But on the flip side, one of the biggest proponents of keeping the term limits in place are um, folks in the Congressional Black and the Congressional Hispanic Caucuses who see their um, seniority and the committee, the positions of committee influence that come with that seniority as one of their biggest areas of influence in the party. And so and they represent really important um, elements of uh, the Democratic base. And so even if Pelosi were to sort of make a move to um, mollify one part of the caucus, um, it risks alienating a different part of the caucus. Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I bet you noticed this as well, but Rashida Tlaib, who's the new um, Democratic congresswoman in John Conyers' old district in Michigan, came out speaking against the seniority system, which, of course, is something that really benefited her uh, predecessor, John Conyers, who was— one of the was the longest tenured member of Congress until he resigned last year. Right. And I mean, I think that's a that's an important point to make, because, you know, when I talk about the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, they're not monoliths. There's disagreement um, within those groups about um, and some of it's along generational lines about exactly what they think the best way to organize the House is. You know, we saw um, in the um, in the election for um, I believe it was uh Uh, caucus chairman yesterday, the um, race between two members of the Black Caucus, Barbara Lee and um, Hakeem Jeffries. So um, those represent two um, different generations, but within that particular base of the the Democratic caucus. Uh, So it's nothing as simple here, but it is a a real sort of um, situation for Pelosi where something that she might do to help solidify her support with one set of members risks alienating another. Right. And Jeffrey, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, who won that caucus chairmanship, um, he's in his 40s. Barbara Lee is in her 70s, the the Democratic congresswoman um, from California. And she was not happy about what happened. She she said she raised uh, her gender and her age as, as issues. Yeah. And I mean, this all um, sort of reflects a broader um, dynamic within the Democratic Party, both 
in the country at large, but in Congress in particular, which is the the idea that um, the Democratic Party is largely organized around these kinds of um, social groups. And that makes, I think, Democratic members of Congress more likely to participate in things like the Congressional Black Caucus and see that as an important part of their service in Congress. As I say, our, our diversity is our strength, but our unity is our power. And we will use that power again uh, in a unifying way for our country. But when you have some of these cross-cutting identity issues, you get into um, situations like the one with Barbara Lee, where you know she raised the the specter of ageism and sexism, um, despite the fact that another African American member had won uh, the race that she was in. Now we mentioned Rashida Tlaib. She she's among the new Democratic progressives who say they will support Pelosi. And the New York Times had a piece this week suggesting that Pelosi, in working to win over people like Tlaib and progressives, might be creating a monster of sorts, that a Democratic version of the Republicans' Freedom Caucus, which has made governing so difficult in recent years because they um, refuse to go along with the party. I is there a risk of that? I'm a little less concerned about that possibility for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you think about part of what brought the Freedom Caucus um, into existence, it was a frustration uh, by some members of the Republican conference with the idea that um, the Republican leadership was um, caving too easily to things that, say, the Senate wanted um, and Senate Republicans wanted. And we have divided um, party control of Congress. So Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate. So the idea that what's going to stop Democrats in the House from getting the things that they want is um, sort of insufficient uh, fealty to a set of ideological principles isn't going to be their major obstacle. It's going to be the fact that there's divided party control and a Republican in the White House. And the other thing that I'll say is that in when we think about kind of what members of the Progressive Caucus want from a Democratic House, the it's really about policy questions. And I think it can often be easier to strike policy compromises than to strike kind of principle compromises and process compromises. And so if what it takes to keep some of the members of the Progressive Caucus happy is a promise to bring up a universal background check bill, for example. Um, those gun, are gun control bill. Exactly. Those are things that um, it's easier. Those are compromises that it's easier for a leader to make than the kinds of um, things that I think the Freedom Caucus was sometimes demanding of the Republican leadership. Okay, Molly. So we talked earlier about this problem solvers caucus and the deal Pelosi reached with them. What did she give them and how significant were her concessions? So um, she made a number of sort of process-oriented um, agreements with the problem solvers. They are clearly things that the problem solvers were pushing for. Um, and I think on the margins, um, they may be helpful to opening up some space for more bipartisan legislating in the House. But I don't see any of them as terribly likely to kind of revolutionize the way the House operates. So there are kind of eight big things. One involves once a bill reaches 290 co-sponsors, make it easier for that to come to the floor. There's Which one... is a big super majority Exactly, of exactly. You know, the simple majority in the House is 218. They're opening up the possibility of more bipartisan amendments, some changes to make it easier to uh, bring up a discharge petition. So a discharge petition is a way that for 
a numerical majority of the of the House, 218 members, can um, force a vote on something. We saw this happen this summer with um, immigration policy uh, in the House, not quite successfully. Right. That's how they um, got campaign finance reform back in the exactly early exactly. 2000s. And there are um, there are currently. Uh, a very limited number of days when you can bring uh, something to the floor under a discharge petition. Pelosi has uh, promised to expand that. Some uh, reforms around committee transparency, a change to the um, what's called the motion to vacate the chair, which is the uh, procedure that members of the House Freedom Caucus have threatened to use to try to depose Republican speakers, making it harder to do that. And just, again, just generally trying to open up the legislative process a little bit to more input from uh, rank and file members as opposed to just uh, party leaders. Okay. You alluded before that there's a chance that some of those 32 who voted against Pelosi and the caucus vote have done that, that they'll have... um, that they'll treat that as their commitment to constituents when they said they would oppose Pelosi. Is there, are there other ways that these anti-Pelosi Democrats might support her in the floor vote in January, but yet save face? So the, the sort of biggest possibility here is for folks either not vote at all in the speakership race or vote present. Um, and the way that the rules for electing a speaker work is that the speaker, to win the election, you have to get a numerical majority of, and here I'm quoting the House precedents, those voting for a member by name. And so if, say, some number of Democrats choose not to vote at all or choose just to vote present, that lowers the absolute number that Pelosi would need to win. And so you could imagine that some of those, particularly those House freshmen who feel like their biggest need to oppose Pelosi here is the promise they made to their constituents, might do that in order to simply, again, to save face and to say that they've fulfilled the promise that they made. And, and what if they stick to their guns, though? What if they <laughs> refuse to vote for her and, vote, in fact, vote against her? Uh, and Pelosi can't secure the majority. What happens then? The House will, will just continue to hold votes until someone gets the requisite number of votes to win. That's not unheard of in American history, but it's been quite a long time since we've seen that. I don't really expect us to get to that point, though. I think that given the margin that Pelosi got in the caucus and the approach that we've seen her use so far in bringing some skeptical members on board, she's used a very kind of carrots-based approach, at least publicly. There may well be sticks behind the scenes that we're not seeing, but most of what what we've observed publicly is Pelosi promising uh, Marsha Fudge of Ohio uh, the chairmanship of a resurrected House subcommittee or telling uh, Brian Higgins of New York that he would get to be the point person on an infrastructure bill, that sort of thing. So I think she probably has enough additional carrots in her her vegetable basket, if you will, um, to uh, to bring um, the number of folks she needs on board before January. And these rebels, one of the big problems they've had is they have no candidate to oppose Pelosi. And you mentioned Marsha Fudge. That was one that they had touted initially, and and Fudge backed down when Pelosi offered her this uh, chairmanship overseeing elections in the states. So why why have they had such a problem? And and does that lack of a viable alternative doom them? Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest reason that they've had a a problem finding um, someone to oppose Pelosi is because I think they sort of know that they're fighting an uphill battle and it's hard to get someone 
to potentially um, be the sacrificial lamb to perhaps sacrifice their individual career in pursuit of something that they may not get in the in the end. And so the leaders of this uh, kind of rebel faction, if you want to call them that, folks like Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, have said have said all along that they believe that you know once it gets to the point where it it's clear that Pelosi doesn't have the support, which is what they where they think we will get, someone will emerge. But you're absolutely right that no one has emerged so far, and that that's I think really hampered their efforts to build a credible campaign against Pelosi. So if Pelosi wins. The top three positions will go to longtime leaders, all in their late 70s. Steny Hoyer of Maryland as majority leader and James Clyburn of South Carolina as whip. But after that, we'll, we will see some fresh faces. The caucus voted for Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico for assistant leader. Hakeem Jeffries, we mentioned before, of New York. He's going to be conference chairman. And Catherine Clark of Massachusetts as conference vice chairman. So, is this the new generation? Might one of these be the next speaker? If not now, then whenever Pelosi steps aside. I mean, they're certainly the the leading contenders to watch for for the next speakership. And you know, several of those folks are people we've been talking about for a little while as promising next generation leaders in the Democratic caucus. So, uh, Ben Ray Lujan just finished being the chair of the DCCC, and there's no better way to uh, build goodwill among uh, your caucus helping get than um, helping elected. win the right. majority again. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the different identity bases within the Democratic caucus. And those are three folks that represent um, different important sources of support in the broader Democratic electorate. Um, African-Americans, Latinos, and women. And so I do think those are three important people to be watching. And so we'll, we'll just see uh, kind of where it goes from here. All right, Molly, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks all of you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. Molly and I are also on Twitter. You can find us at Sean Zeller or at Molly E. Reynolds.